you're a pretty big guy. <laughs> pretty what? So I was quoting uh, Dark Knight Rises. What'd you say? You're a big guy. Oh. That's where you go, for you. It's like, if I took that mask off, would you die? It would be extremely painful. Oh, yeah. You're a big guy. For you. For you. <laughs> that line is memed endlessly on the internet. I'm a big fan. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that meme. Well, I go to the dark corners, and you stay mostly in the... the fresh water. The well-lit yeah. fresh water. Yeah. <laughs> in the shallow end of the pool, and I'm over there at the 20-foot deep, scrounging in the corners for the things that fall. Like a rat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like dead animals and insects, which is a great segue for the film we're going to talk about today briefly, because I'm the only person probably in a 50-mile radius that's actually seen it. But it's been getting good reviews. Uh, yeah. And it's generally it's positive. being promoted a lot of places, I think. It was, actually. Which is curious because it is a film that would be rated strongly, uh, bigly, if I were to use our president's adjectives. It's actually the theatrical release of the film. It was uncut, is how they marketed it, mm -hmm. because it was very graphic. The film we're talking about is Possessor, Brandon Cronenberg's 2020 sci-fi film. I don't know. There's a lot of words I could use to describe it. Brandon Cronenberg is the son of David Cronenberg, who is... A director. Needs, yeah, he needs no introduction. He's legendary in his own right. He was... He directed The Fly. Yeah. And Videodrome. Movies like... A lot of classic body horror films from the late 20th century. And then he got really into Viggo Mortensen for a while. Yeah. And he was in Eastern Promises. He directed that. He directed History of Violence. Yes. Which is, which is also incredible. I mean, he's done a lot of good films, but... More recently, he directed Cosmopolis with... Robert, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah. That was, I think that was one of the films that helped launch yeah. Robert Pattinson's new career, <laughs> post-Twilight, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, which post made him a serious actor. Post-Harry Potter, post-Twilight, post-whatever. But yeah, David Cronenberg. Um, Can you imagine being David Cronenberg's son? I'd like to be. He's like, let me show you how to make insane movies. I mean, when you think of some of the most influential filmmakers of the 20th century, I can't imagine being any of their sons. <laughs> but yeah. like Steven Spielberg, I don't even know anything about his family, but imagine being his son. Imagine carrying that mantle. Like your father is... I have imagined that, actually. Steven Spielberg. What do you do? That's why I think it's so weep. cool. I weep late at night. <laughs> weep violently? Yeah. That's why I think it's so cool that Brandon Cronenberg is taking up his father's mantle. And in my opinion, he's doing a very good job. This is only, I think think his second feature mm -hmm. maybe it's not but he's only done a few films and i think antiviral which was his first was like six years ago they're canadian right i'm not sure but it wouldn't surprise me i think they are so what's this film about possessor is like i said it's a science fiction film it's not like a star wars or yeah marvel film or something it's not a space opera and it's not part of a larger franchise or ip yeah. it's a very standalone piece which I would love to see more films in this style or even in this universe. Mm -hmm. It's probably not going to get a sequel or a spinoff or anything. Um, I know Brendan Cronenberg is developing other projects now that are likely unrelated, but a Possessor was great. It's this little film, pretty tight-knit story about this kind of like Inception, how Christopher Nolan, I mean, that's the obvious comparison due to the nature of what they do in this film. It's They have agents in the future, in the near future, kind of like corporate hitmen. It's an espionage film at its heart. And what these agents do is they, quote unquote, possess the body of an individual to carry out a crime or a hit. And then once that person has finished the job and disposed of the mark, they terminate themselves as the host. 
So it's like a homicide, suicide situation. And then the agent, the possessor is pulled back out, you know, kind of like Inception. And that's the job. So I'm not selling it very well, but that's the basic premise of the film and how they go about doing their thing. So the film opens on a job and that sort of sets you up with the character, the main character, whose name is Tasia Voss. She's this agent, very kind of disaffected. Maybe it's through years of being in this line of work. She's sort of had, <laughs> she seems depressed and she has this strange disassociative disorder almost where she's not really sure who she is anymore and that's one of the problems of this process is that you start to lose your own sense of identity and individuality uh, externally and internally so they have tests one of my favorite parts of the film is upon exiting a job they run through this test kind of like a psychological exam where they present you with a series of items and they see if you can associate the items that you're familiar with and the items that you don't know to kind of make sure you're still you Mm -hmm. uh, and anyway, the main conflict of the story is they go on another job that sort of maybe spirals out of control without giving anything away, and things get a little crazy because this main character, Tasia Voss, played wonderfully, or depressingly, <laughs> by Andrea Riseborough. It's a mouthful. She uh, is constantly losing sense of herself, so she struggles with that and struggles with this process of possession. If the company that was doing this was aware of her identity kind of sort of problem. Why did they use her again? Why not use a different possessor? One, it's an extremely exclusive club. This is a very uh, secret industry, I think. Also, she's one of the best as she is addressed by her mentor slash supervisor, who's played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, as one of the best in the business. So mm. she's the person that she wants to succeed her in her mantle of being kind of overseeing this whole operation, being the one they keep going to for these jobs. Also, she doesn't really let on. She sort of conceals how much of a toll these jobs are taking on her. So only the audience knows truly just how desperate her situation is over the course of the film. Her supervisors and her team don't know the, uh, the cost this is taking on her psychologically. Gotcha. Sean Bean is in it? Yeah, Sean Bean plays pretty well to type. He's sort of the patriarch of this mega corporation who has a data mining operation, which is a pretty interesting facet of the film. But he is like the mark for the main conflict of the film. He's the guy that they have to go after and terminate. And the guy that she's possessing is that he's played by Christopher Abbott? Yeah. Christopher Abbott is the other lead, I guess you would call him in the film. He's the person, the host that Andrea Riseborough's character possesses and spends most of the time inside his body. And then that identity sort of shifts back and forth as the film goes on, and you get to see each character play that character, I guess. He's an incredible actor, Christopher Abbott. He's done some other films. Nothing massive yet, but I think he's only going bigger and better places. Yeah, you might recognize his face. Yeah, he's very handsome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't look away. He looks sort of like, um, he almost looks like Kit Harrington and Tom Hardy. And, yeah, big, big Kit and Harrington. And Oscar Isaac all into one. Yes, all those people, but he's very much his own. Man, he has a very, I mean, this character is, a lot of it's in the subtlety of the cues between being able to tell as an audience member who's possessing the body at any given time. Right. And I think Christopher Abbott, and he worked a lot with Andrea to figure out, or Andrea, to figure out how they could play as a team to define those nuances and those subtleties so that it was clear that it was supposed to be ambiguous, I think, who's possessing the body at, at any given time later in the film. But you can also sort of piece together, I think, if you're paying attention to tell what's going on. A lot of great casting all the way around this film. The main appeal to this film, 
and sort of Brandon as the heir to the Cronenberg legacy is in the effects. And that's what the heart of this film is, is the practical and the in-camera effects. Because that's what Cronenberg was known for as one of the fathers of body horror and those sorts of genre, I think. Like John Carpenter and the people of the 80s and 90s who sort of defined this style of, like you remember The Fly, how insanely graphic that was and gratuitous. Yeah. And you've told me how you hate that about Tarantino, so you'd probably despise this film. But it's funny the way Cronenberg talks about it, Brandon. He finds it more unsettling in, for instance, a PG-13 film when a bad guy is just gunned down and it's very blasé. So he, like his father, gravitates towards these more extreme displays of violence for his own reasons. And this film is <laughs> chock full of those. Not chock full. There are, it's mostly restrained, but there are a few instances where it's very explosive and graphic. And they had a lot of wonderful practical and in-camera effects designed by Dan Martin and a lot of people who were very accomplished in the industry at designing these things, these puppets, they call them. So you have, for instance, casts of the actors' heads and arms. So anytime there's dismemberment or something like that, everything is done practically, and you have just gallons of blood (laughs) spurting everywhere. Really wonderful. And you could tell... Yeah. (laughs) You could tell why. You could tell the dedication that these people have to their craft and how good they are at doing it. I thought you were going to say, you could tell how strange you are because of how much you enjoy that. Well, I mean, you could. there's a lot of love in this film, which is funny because it's a very violent film. But one of the classic examples is like, for me, uh, there's there's the 1980s, the thing John Carpenter did, and they did a spiritual remake or like a prequel to it recently called The Thing in the last 10 years. And it was done with all CGI effects. And you can tell, even when there's good money behind it, the practical effects, not to sound like a film snob, you know, the people who are like, film is better, practical effects are better, but they really are superior. I mean, if they're done right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can have, when you've got Disney money doing your effects, you can make these Marvel films look good with so much CGI, but there's really only so much I think a person can take Mm -hmm. of CGI before they lose their own grasp on reality. But the practical effects, when they're done with such care, I think they really hold up. And that's one of the reasons this film is so notable to me and why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. There are so many sequences in the film, even without blood, that are just really fascinating. The first time you see the possession encounter, which is sort of this dream state representation of what's going on, Mm -hmm. you have... It's a very Willy Wonka-esque. Yeah, you have Andrea, her character, Tassi Voss, is in the bed, and then so her consciousness melts away, and that's represented by a cast of her entire body melting. They expose the the model to extreme heat, and it melts at a rapid speed on camera, so it's like disintegrating. Yeah. And then they do the same thing to a puppet of Christopher Abbott's character, only they played in reverse, and it's him sort of forming... Hmm. in in high speed and it's really it's really cool to watch and it's one of my favorite parts of the film highlighted by an incredible score by jim williams who hasn't done anything big crazy like there's a lot of talented people in this film that haven't done anything big i was just about to ask you how the score was the score was was one of my favorite parts was it electronic was it orchestral a lot of electronic, a lot of those things that I love that you probably know that I love so much, which is like those droning, the noises, kind of ambient noises. It was very kind of downplayed and subtle. But this particular sequence had this very interesting flourish and kind of fanciful melody to it, kind of an exhilarating moment because you see this happening on screen. I don't know. It was really, really special. I, well, I do usually go listen to scores after I've seen a film. But this is one that stuck with me because it just fit so well. 
Other shout outs, the cinematographer, Kareem Hussein, did a phenomenal job. You don't usually think a small film like this would have such notable cinematography, but this film really did. They used a lot of macro lenses and they were really able to get up close and personal on their actors and on their puppets. Like there are sequences where it goes really close on the eye, which is interesting, kind of like Blade Runner. There's a a lot of significance of the eye in this film and Mm -hmm. sort of the reflection that you see in it. But also wides and sweeping establishing shots. They do this interesting thing. I'm just gushing now. They do this really interesting thing sometimes to set up a new scene to give you a sense of scale in the city. I think they're in Canada, Toronto, where they're doing the inception thing where they're rotating the camera slowly Mm -hmm. as they slowly zoom in. And Mm -hmm. it gives it that dreamy kind of what's happening, psychological confusion vibe to the whole thing, which is definitely what they were going for. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I already talked about the practical effects. Dan Martin did a great job and the score. Yeah. So this was a film that premiered at Sundance uh, back in January before the pandemic hit globally. (laughs) Yeah, they had to stop a lot of their press tour because of the coronavirus, which is a bummer. I think they would have gotten more noise around it. They did have a theatrical release. And then it was picked up by Neon and Elevation Pictures. Neon does a lot of great stuff. They did Parasite, which was huge. I mean, they were already on the map. I think they did... So this came out back in October, a month and a half ago. Yeah. And was it sort of like a October-y film, like a Halloween kind of film? Absolutely, okay. yeah. Yeah, definitely very timely. <laughs> Yeah, I figured, I mean... And, and again, I thought it was interesting that they marketed it towards the later stages. I don't know if this had any effect because of the pandemic, but they marketed it as Possessor Uncut. Like, this might have just been an American thing because they knew it wasn't going to go big in theaters anyway because no one was seeing films in theaters. Right. But they just released it as the uncut version. So yeah. that's a lot of the extra gratuity is in the film. Mm-hmm. But I think that just makes it more interesting because that's what Brandon Cronenberg had wanted to release. This is probably pretty close to, if not exactly, his vision for this film. Yeah, it was praised for its originality and the performances, which Gabe already discussed. There's a lot of inspiration. You can think about something like Inception or some of the classic Argento films. He, he said he drew a lot from opera specifically, Dario Argento. He did Suspiria and a lot of those very vibrant, classic, not quite as body horror as David Cronenberg. But it's very clear to see the inspiration that he drew from, from his father's era of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot on this cast about, it's interesting to us, I mean, it's useful knowledge also to think about the filmmakers that inspired the filmmakers that you love. Yeah, yeah, So thinking about people like Robert Eggers and Ari Aster. We were touching on that back in in Midsommar. A lot of these directors who are in their 30s now, which I think Brandon Cronenberg is in his 30s. He's 40, I think. Oh, yeah, maybe. He looks younger. (laughs) He was born in 1980, so he's 40 years old. That's crazy. I thought he was younger. I would still consider him part of the younger generation of filmmakers who were yeah. paying a lot of homage to those classic era filmmakers mm-hmm. that his father was one of. And that's just really cool to see. If you love the genre, you can pick those things out pretty clearly. What exactly is a genre? It's not horror. It's like a thriller or uh, body. What are you saying? Body? It blurs the lines between psychological thriller and body horror because it doesn't really lean too far into any one genre, I think. I would just like to think of it as a sci-fi film because it really is... Yeah. The questions that the film poses, and this is one of the reasons I love the genre so much, or film in general, is because it asks those questions about, in this film, for instance, identity and what that means to be yourself and who you are and losing yourself, maybe even taking the film as a metaphor for society, not to get too like cliche and tropey. 
Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. What that means to lose yourself in it and sort of finding your way back. The journey Andrea's character, Tasi Voss, goes through in this film from start to finish, and you can see her sort of continue to be dehumanized, not just by the nature of her work, but the, the specific things that she goes through and the things that she allows herself to go through and sort of how those she continues to break down her own barriers. One of the first things I said to you after I saw this film was that I was confused by the way it ended. Yeah. Because it ends very abruptly, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. I was curious and I saw it a second time and it started to make more sense to me. This film kind of spirals out of control and it ends in a way, without spoiling anything, where Tasi Voss makes decisions that sort of cement her journey in this film and mm -hmm. sort of completes her character arc mm -hmm. in a way that I was very caught off guard by because yeah. it seemed so strange. Why would this character do this? Initially, and the more time I thought about it and the second time I saw it, it started to make more sense to me that this was maybe the message of the film. It's like the things that you allow yourself to go through and sort of that process of dehumanizing yourself, desensitizing yourself. Hmm. And then she just continues to lose more of her identity. And So you think it was very intentional? Yeah. And I still wish there was an extra 20 minutes for closure and sort of wrapping up a third act. There's no closure in life, Gabe. No, there's not. <laughs> so I'm learning to live with that. Yeah. But there are plot lines that are kind of unresolved that could leave the film open for a sequel or something like that, or just more of a third act in general. But I'm more at peace now with how it ended. And I think endings of films are always fascinating to me, especially the ones that seem abrupt. But I think it makes sense now when I'm thinking about it. A lot of criticisms of this film were more oriented around there were just too many ideas presented in this film, but I actually thought it was done perfectly. You don't have to have everything explained for you, especially in sci-fi, because that's not the point. You know, it's interesting how much of the thriller slash horror, yeah, I guess you would say that kind of genre actually inspires pop culture and what films eventually become. Like if you think about Get Out and how people were just praising Jordan Peele right after that movie came out. Yeah. It oftentimes <laughs> launches a director's career and then they can start going and making films that aren't horror or thriller. Mm -hmm. But horror, because you can do it so interestingly for less money, it's sort of a lot of people's ticket into the film industry. You know? Yeah, it is. It is definitely a genre that uh, can be effectively done on a budget, at least for mass audiences. That's why you see Jordan Peele is a great example you know, or groups like Bloomhouse that can really churn films out right. at a dime. Yeah. But I think Possessor is special to me. And even films, the first thing I thought of was 2018's Annihilation. Films that are right. still of a smaller scale, but not quite so small. They have a little bit more money behind it. And they're done by, and I would call Brandon Cronenberg an auteur in that way, where his, his films are very much a product of himself and they're very stylized. Yeah, the whole time you were describing this, I was thinking of Ex Machina. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. felt very like that in tone. Tone. <laughs> because it was very much not standard popcorn fare, and that's why I love it so much. This film is probably my favorite film of the year so far. And it's not hard to do because this film's been totally shafted by the coronavirus. Unfortunate. Once again, rest in peace, Dune 2020 holiday release. <laughs> but Possessor, I'm glad it was able to sort of slip into amongst everything happening this yeah. year get out there into the public. And so would you... Would I recommend it? Ultimately recommend it no, to the audience? Not, not for the general audience. <laughs> if you are into Cronenberg Sr. and that style of John Carpenter, you know, late 20th century sci-fi horror, then you should absolutely check it out. 
even if you don't love it as much as I do, there's a lot of cool things that you'll find in this film just from the practical effects. But it is graphic. It's graphic, and you should be warned. That's why it's marketed as uncut, because they really went... Both in violence and nudity. Yeah, there's a little bit of genitalia. Yeah. Just a tiny bit. (laughs) I think they're... (laughs) But that is it. That's uh, me running my mouth for a film that I absolutely adore. It's awesome. I, I don't know. I still want to watch it. I just haven't yet, because it's not free anywhere. It's it's going on VOD. I think it already went on VOD. You should be able to find it on uh, one of the streaming sites. For free? Not for free. Yeah. Maybe for free. That's what I'm saying. It's not free anywhere yet. So you'd, you would have to rent it, I think, online. on Probably. Somewhere. Yeah. So what song should we play here? You could just play any from Jim Williams' score. 